0: Welcome everyone to the meeting of the Human Resources Committee on January 9th, 2019. Happy New Year to everyone and um, thank you for your accommodation as I move my chair to, um, to make it easier for me to hear and participate. Today we are going to begin with our minutes from the October 10th meeting. Can I do well? Today we will begin welcome. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Trustee (laughs) Jensen. Here.
1: Trustee
2: DeVries will be here shortly. Trustee Hernandez. Here. And Trustee Peterson.
0: Here. We have a quorum. Thank you. Thank you. And welcome Trustee Peterson to the meeting and Trustee Hernandez. Nice to see everyone. Happy New
3: Year.
0: Happy New Year. Um, So the minutes which I didn't print but I did review, were there any suggestions or changes?
1: I move that we approve the minutes. If I could just
3: point out, there was one thing that I missed when I went through it. Uh, and it's on the uh, first page, and it's um, under item, <coughs> the public comment item. It says RIF, RIFF, and that should be capital R, capital I, capital F, just to be clear.
0: IF. Yes. Yes.
3: Yes. No. Only one F? Yes, only
0: one F. With that amendment, all in favor? Aye. 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 So the minutes have been approved. Welcome, Trustee DeRoose. Our next item is the um, injury and excuse me, the injury and illness plan, which we will hear a presentation.
4: Uh, trustees. Uh, while the slide says. Tony Redmond. It's actually going to be uh, Greg Stevens, who's our Disability Program Manager. He's going to talk to you a little bit about this. Um, this is a statutory required program for us to have. Greg is the expert in the area and has been working on this for some time. He'll run you through what we're requesting and then the, the content of the plan, uh, and then we'll pick up any questions you may have at the end. Okay.
0: Welcome,
5: Greg.
6: Good evening, and happy new year everybody. So I'm going to be talking about the our Injury and Illness Prevention Program. And this is a, about an October to April project I worked on with a consultant from Beta Healthcare. Uh, and the, the, I'll explain why we're here. <laughs> but first let's start with what and what the IIPP is, is the acronym I use. As a Cal OSHA mandated program, so we, it's a must do for us, uh, and its intent is to improve safety and health in the workplace, and reduce costs through effect, effective management and employee involvement, which is key to all this. And it truly, it is a blueprint for us to promote safety and and health and outline policies and procedures to achieve our safety and health goals the, the list on the bottom there are eight required elements that your plan must have and our plan has that times 10. <laughs> i just wanted to make that list for, for you all i'm not going to read that but i just want to make sure those are the required elements per osha So the why is we had a OSHA visit in October of 2017 and we had them review our previous IIPP which they found, I'll use their word, to be ineffective. Uh, and that really triggered and ramped up this project that we really needed an effective IIPP. So we consulted with our beta healthcare partners. Uh, she was f- fantastic with walking me through this entire process. They have a really excellent program to, to go through this process. Um, the, the other key issue here is that Cal OSHA also recommended that we come to you all for approval of this document. That's the other why we're here. Uh, and the revision, the last revision we made was due to the workplace violence prevention legislation that recently passed and with Cal OSHA and we definitely needed that language in this plan as well. So what's next? Uh, I, I'm assuming upon board approval that we will really need to spend some time training our employees on this document, what it is, so they'll have some knowledge around it. I think we're going to probably be looking at uh, doing it as part of our annual competencies. I think that's probably the best way to reach everybody. Uh, the IPP in its draft form is currently on our intranet for everyone to look at. And Tony and I were talking about this earlier. I think in terms of reviewing this document, we want to do at least an annual review of the document to see if there's any changes we need to make I think if there's anything substantial we would come back to the board and review those changes with, with you all so that's a 10,000 foot overview of, of, of what this is and why i'm here and uh, welcome any all questions you might
4: have I, a couple of things i would add so the the last element on the previous slide that greg touched on the workforce violence prevention um, is new legislation requiring those to train all staff on work work violence prevention specifically. Uh, We're rolling out a program across the organization right now. And in a similar way, I think the injury and illness prevention plan will be tiered. So the workforce violence plan will have training for everyone in the organization. The IAPP, likewise, needs to be shared with everyone in the organization. Then we need to look at those areas where the highest degree of likelihood of a violent incident or an injury is going to take place and spend more resources in those areas rather than spread the organization incredibly thin. And so areas where we do a higher degree of training are the emergency room, PES and John George generally, where we know there's a likelihood of there being some interaction that's not going to be ideal with patients because of the nature of the patients and the interaction. Uh, Fairmont, where we have a higher number of young, what I would say, uh, unusual SNF patients. Uh, who are older in their life, uh, could have been in a traumatic accident, could have a uh, BTI, uh, and so it's unusual for people to be residents in a sniffer of that early age, and so there's a greater degree of trauma and the interactions are more challenging for our staff. And so we're gonna likely spend more of our resources at Fairmont, John George, and in all of the EDs, instead of trying to do training for every single person in the organization to the same degree, because it's likely to be ineffective. It'll stretch us too thin and take too long to get around that, the entirety of the organization. We'll also look at data from Code Grays, which for us is a, an interaction, threatening interaction with a patient or family member, and look at where those occur to the greatest degree. Again, they're in the ED, somewhat in the care building here, and again, use that data to drive where we spend most of our resources instead of trying to, to train everyone equally. You know, I don't run to a Code Gray. But we do have pro-grade teams, those people need to be fully trained in both the, this plan and the Workforce Violence plan. And likewise, in PS and John George, we need people trained in a more detailed fashion that will be face-to-face as opposed to being the online competency training. I
1: have a question about um, does this include all of our efforts to uh, prepare people if we have an active shooter as well?
6: Or would that be in a separate place in our safety? I know we have active shooter training that's done separately from this. Um, There's not specific language around active shooter in this plan. It's a separate policy that we have.
4: so, part of it, right. right. so it's two separate, two, two separate things. Okay. But one of the things, the last thing I'll add on this is I have spoken with Beta about our actual structure around this uh, and what they would recommend. And Beta is our insurer for malpractice mm-hmm. and, and general liability insurance. What they recommend is the structure for ownership of this in terms of the FDs and where that needs to sit. The owner of the program you'll see in the plan is Luis Fonseca, on officer Uh, that is fine we also have emergency preparedness and then we have uh, Greg in the HR department and we have other resources spread out and so what I've asked Beta to do is come back to us with a recommended structure where the ownership belongs so we can be much clearer on the accountability for each of the things that occur so when an injury occurs uh, if it's a worker's company, that's Greg's area, that's his expertise, he goes out to training with a manager, we get the people back to work. If there's an interaction between a patient and family member and an employee, then who ultimately is responsible for the training and the reconciliation of that issue? And so that's unclear, I think it's unclear in most hospitals and we, we have asked them to give us a best practice around this so we can develop a structure that will effectively support our staff uh, and both then the patients and their family members on top of that. That's great. Yeah. i was curious. What um, What were the key reasons that they found our other plan
7: ineffective, and and what steps
6: did you take, just broadly? You know, if you sure. That? It was really an outdated document. It's probably the, the best summary. It was a document that I, I've been working here since 2008, and it preceded me by several years, mm-hmm. and it had never been revised. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, in my view, it was just a matter of time before college. officials said, "Folks, you need to." Get this, get this together and uh, uh, and it was a very worthwhile project and got very good guidance from Beta Healthcare
4: on it. Uh, can I just add to that? Um, how often is
0: there a schedule for
4: review now? Like or? So I think we uh, mentioned we'd review this on an annual basis. Any substantial changes would then come forward to this committee to then recommend to the board acceptance in the IIPP going forward.
1: You know, this brings up something that um, is part of a separate conversation that we might have at our board retreat. But for every committee, um, and Tony, you'd have to guide us on this, but there really does need to be a calendar of regulations or certifications or requirements that need to be updated, you know, annually or, or every couple of years. Yeah. And I don't know that we have something like that in a summary fashion. I'm not asking to, you know, dive into every yeah. uh, great detail on each of these, but this is a really good example of why that's right. necessary because someone should have been able to say, "Gee, we haven't looked at this for, yeah. you know, eight years. It might be a good thing to do." And and if. Oh, cal is going to come regularly to take a look at that i'd like to be ahead of that right i'd like not to have that be prompted by a visit but that we're the ones saying hey that's coming up let's check that box
4: yeah yeah it absolutely does let me look into it from the hedgehog perspective i don't want to speak to the clear areas, the yeah, that's other, yeah. other committees, but certainly on the HR side, we can do that. And I think the the issue around the ageing and the out of debt is an important one, and that goes to the the recommendation we're asking Bill to make around the structure yeah. and ownership. There was a significant gap around who owned this. Mm-hmm. In the IIPP did it belong in emergency preparedness? Did it belong mm-hmm. in HR? Where else and all that? It did not have a clear owner mm-hmm. historically. And so we have it now, yeah. uh, we're gonna hold on to it, and then we're gonna ask Baylor to give us guidance on where else would it potentially mm-hmm. sit, or should it sit in the HR, and should to that are currently somewhere else come to this, and should we structure sure. it around to make sure that this is fully implemented and managed. So yeah. but to a broader point, absolutely.
1: And, and my last comment on that would be maybe that table should have the owners, yeah. uh, uh, the department that owns that particular yeah. regulation so that we know. To anticipate these conversations. Yeah, Thank absolutely.
0: Uh, to that point, um, to it, it appears from the from the, in the, in the appendix at least mm-hmm. that it's uh, entirely owned in HR or that it's it um, comes from HR working with departments. My my question is how much participation was there? I know with Beta, it was partnership with, with Beta and NHS. What about with the? Um, there's a, a lot of discussion of supervisor responsibilities and how much staff participation was there in developing this i mean was there or what when you updated if you had a question did you just go to staff and get a response or was it
6: uh that's a good plan actually I, I really think that's the what's next part of this is that we really need to bring this to staff for their review and training and if there's input that, that leads to significant change, we would, we would definitely bring it back to to the board.
0: Yeah, and, and uh, I mean, I think it's good. I like that there's measures that you that there's it's specific. You know what to do. For example, um, it, it, obtain training in these areas. Instruct your staff and work for you in these areas. So that's good. I I, I think that you're right. It what you're going to get when this goes out is somebody's going to say, well that won't work in this particular right. department, so. That's right. And my um, my last question is was this, Beta um, was a big partner with us, so hopefully we're gonna, they're gonna, I'm not gonna say give us a discount, but they <laughs> like this and
4: they think <laughs> that we're doing. So, yeah. but they are a couple of things. The, the, the beta, does this to help us reduce injuries, that reduces their liability, but obviously our mm-hmm. liability is also yes. to So they're driving down their costs and ours. Uh, we partner with them in a number of other areas um, in terms of better hard and other programs, some of which have discounts. This doesn't have a discount. They're doing this in partnership with us. And will ultimately, hopefully, reduce the workers' compensation liability costs that we incur. So that's a benefit to that man to us. We're, we're actually self-insured, actually, on the workers' comp side, so it's really a benefit to us. Yeah, and you know, I will point out that, you know, last year, the, the, the cost of
3: the workers' compensation reinsurance was reduced based upon our experience the prior year, meaning we had positive experience. And so the cost of that reinsurance was reduced somewhat. And, uh, again, so we're now basically being assessed uh, our insurance is being assessed at the low one of the lower rates within the data pool of covered employers
0: excellent are there any other questions or comments if not then this is an action item and i will um entertain a motion to approve the injury illness plan so moved second Uh, and without objection
4: uh all all right, Thank you. Thank you. That's right. Thank you all. Excellent job. Thanks, Greg. Dashboard. Thanks. Sure. Uh, Greg's going to hang out for the dashboard because it's a complicated. It'll be useful for him to speak about. Just because I'm sitting. Because he's sitting right next to Tracy. Yeah. So, uh, i will going go through the dashboard. I'm going to try and run through this quickly because we have presentations from some physicians on our residency programs and I want to give them as much time as we possibly can uh time to fill uh we are looking pretty good in that area we see it's 38 days uh so that's looking good Slightly like from last the previous quarter but it's still substantially below our target uh time to onboard employees is uh below target by almost three days so we feel pretty good about that the alameda county residents uh who are employers and applicants the applicant pool still looks pretty good the resident numbers tick down slightly i would say not an area of concern yet but we want to keep an eye on that the applicants still are coming predominantly from our county if that continues but the, the hiring rate starts to look as though it's coming from outside the county then that might start to be an area of concern for us to keep a close eye on at this point I think it's just something we want to watch for the next couple of quarters to see if it if it continues um, and then the workers' compensation data. In uh, the number of workers' injuries, you see uh, it's picked up in the current quarter to 71. I've spoken to Greg about this. We had a number of uh, injuries that were reported late, and Mm -hmm. I wanted Greg to speak a little bit about that because that data then carried into this quarter, which it wouldn't have otherwise done, and so that impacted the data. Um, Greg, any thoughts on that?
0: Can I also ask Greg to, um, you
4: mentioned that it's calculated differently in the chart. So in terms of working, we're working with a new vendor right now, so I'll ask Greg to speak to more of this. Sure.
6: So we, want to, we can start with lost days. Actually, the, what we're going to be getting from Beta Health is some benchmark data with other employers that they insure. Uh, very similar hospitals to us. Um, so hospitals that are going to uh, be very similar to to our experience. Um, there almost there with getting what that's what we need I think
4: as of today we're still working on it we're expected to have it for this meeting so I apologize for that it's just it's not in, in a state that we can share at this mm-hmm. point but they're, they're working on it they've identified the comparative hospitals and the data and they're working their way through it to give us something that, that's going to make real sense for us to look at it, as to how well are we doing on the workers compensation on the number of injuries compared to similar institutions or as close as they can match. And that way we'll have a real benchmark. Instead of what we were doing, which was to look at just reducing, we'll have a com- real comparator that we can say we're doing well or we're not doing well, we need to do something differently. So the bump in claims
6: for a quarter, it was in October. We had, we were typically around 20 or, or less claims per month. That particular month, we had 30 something and what I noticed in the data is that there was probably a good fifteen or so claims that reported late, and which skewed the data, and because they fell in the, into the month of October. Uh, generally, what I do—it's a learning mo- moment for managers, because managers really need to be aware that reporting is required within twenty-four hours. Uh, so I've. Uh, I was at the time reaching out to managers who had that experience like there's a few more on my list that I need to hit but um, that's we can't have that because there's really a 24-hour reporting requirement Um, that's what skewed the data in this instance otherwise it was really an outlying month the month of October Um, so that's that's the explanation for the
4: 71 thanks Greg Um, any other questions on that? So uh, moving on, then we, we're looking at turnover. you will see the current month actually as well is, uh, just over 10.4% uh, annualized, uh, which is below target. Obviously, the lower the better from our perspective, and so that's down and is a good thing. First-year turnover is down on the previous quarter. Second-year turnover is up. Uh, so that obviously is still concerns about first and second year turnover but the first year is down and the overall rate of turnovers down pretty significantly to below target. Uh, obviously we want to stay on track with that. A similar pattern in nursing, the annualized turnover is down uh, below 11%, uh, which is a plus for us. First year turnover is dramatically down, um, and then second year turnover is down slightly. And so generally, over a three-month period, we're seeing improvement. Clearly, three months is not a trend. uh, And we need to keep working on this to try and keep the the turnover down. But it seems like we're heading in the right direction, certainly for the last quarter. If we can keep it up for a couple of additional quarters, then we'll start to see that. The changes that we've tried to have, the interactions with managers around hiring and slowing down a little bit, making sure they invest time when they're interviewing is having some actually significant effect in a meaningful way as opposed to just this being a, a blip. We want this to be a trend. And,
1: and Tony, on this, uh, you mentioned the Leadership Academy yeah. being you know, potentially a factor. Mm-hmm. Have you heard some feedback from the field on just uh, people noticing? A, a different type of interaction with leaders, different type of engagement with their managers as a result of how many have gone through
4: it? Anecdotally, yes, but it, it's still anecdote. I think this will tell us if we can get through another couple of quarters and we've seen significant difference in this area. And then when we go into the engagement survey, we'll get some sort of sense whether we've had a real impact. So I'm sort of cautious of the anecdotes because some people have gone and it's significant to change their management style other people have gone to the academy come out and they're the same person they were when they went in. So I don't like to assume that it's going to dramatically shift everyone. It's going to shift some people. Um, this is a, an, an indicator, but nothing more than that until we see a couple more quarters. And if we see this continuing, then we'll, we'll feel like we started to have some real impact. Okay.
0: That's, great. That's great data, though. It's great to see that trend. Mm-hmm. Keep our fingers crossed. Absolutely.
4: Uh, the last slide is uh, we talked a little about uh, exit interview data, so we, we uh, displayed in a slightly different format this time that we thought would be more useful to you. This is all the people that have exited both voluntary and involuntary since uh, July of 2016 uh, to December of 2018 who have responded. And so we have about a 50 percent response rate, which is uh, certainly a meaningful response rate and so whether people uh, were terminated voluntary or involuntary they are contacted a number of times by the survey company uh, they have a set of questions that they're asked each person's asked the same questions uh, and they have an opportunity to respond uh, and this this is these are the, the areas where they indicated or the most important reason they indicated for leaving the organization uh, presuming it was involuntary in nature and so as you see by far it's, it's schedule and shift. That's not unusual particularly for anyone who's worked in healthcare for a long time, particularly around the nurses. They predominantly take roles based on shift, schedule and pay. Uh, and the last element being location. Uh, because there are nursing roles in so many locations, uh, particularly in the Bay Area, which are saturated with hospitals and other care providers. Uh, if you get further east in the country, there are far fewer hospitals uh, than we have in the Bay Area. And so you'll see that the opportunities are less and turnover generally goes down and shift in schedule and location becomes less of an issue.
1: Uh, Tony, yes. we should see this though by the two categories, not all lumped together. Um, you' by gender no, no people uh, who leave voluntarily involuntarily would be a different population than the people who are exiting.
4: So the, if you look to the left of the far left of the slide uh-huh. they're segmented together as involuntary uh-huh. as a group, but we can absolutely pull them out into a separate slide if you'd like to see it that way. And I can see that, that would be I, easier I to see I yeah. uh,
0: uh, uh, yeah. yeah. uh, the involuntary um, responders in that in that part of the chart, in that third uh, category, or could there some of the involuntary um,
4: departures be in other? have responded in other areas. No, the way they categorised the involuntary is the involuntary reason code that, mm-hmm. that were terminated. So that's captured when we provide the fee to the company. Okay. These, are, these are the key reasons that they were terminated, uh, the involuntary. It may be better just to pull this out and put it on a separate but, slide. So, just so, so what does
1: it mean, for example, it's got environment and management underneath it? What, what do those categories mean? Are you saying
8: that those are so those are people that voluntary terminations and reasons okay. yeah, in those categories?
1: Yeah, I think you I, I think you'd want to separate this into it. That'd
8: be better. No problem.
0: Yeah. I also um, noticed notice that there's no there's no uh, salary or, or compensation reason. Correct. Is that is that because nobody leaves because they're not making enough money or
4: well, uh, it, it, that could go. It, it could be mixed in with a, a right. secondary or tertiary reason, but mm-hmm. this is the primary reason that people are leaving. Because b- b- when you ask someone why they left, they could they could give a myriad of reasons. I like, relocated. I mm-hmm. relocated because of cost of living or income, or because my spouse relocated. And so you start to. Um, dissected in many ways, and they can provide more than one reason, they're actually asked to provide a primary reason, Mm -hmm. and these are the primary reasons.
1: And and so no one's leaving because of pay, from what, I mean, the primary reason is not pay. Correct. Well, that would be interesting information to share with our (laughs) global units (laughs) about (laughs) the (laughs) people proceeding, right? Just... Um, interesting. Right. Well, that's a great update. Are there other questions about the
0: um, dashboard?
7: I'm sorry. Oh, I did it back on the other page. I'm sorry. The, 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 little, the blip in um, second-year turnover, I mean, that's a fairly small number of people that would cause yeah. a points to jump by 10. So yeah. Correct. It doesn't
4: mean a whole lot in this one month, right? Correct. Well the square. That's correct. And that's why I don't want to put too much story in terms of our general turnover going down. It's mm-hmm. great that it went down, but I don't want to presume anything until we see two or three quarters in succession and then we can start to feel like we're making good headway. Thank okay, you. Thank,
0: you. thank you. Thanks Greg.
4: Uh, So next, we're going to move on to the Employee Engagement Vendor, and I'm going to ask Shemaine Pierce, who's our lead business partner, to talk about that. she's leading this project, Uh, and she's going to talk to you about the vendor that we've selected, why we made that choice, and a little bit more about uh, how we'll implement the survey ready to Okay.
2: So, um, we have decided to go with Engage to Excel. Previously, we were using Press Gaming. I'm sure you recall me being here and speaking about our results. Mm -hmm. Um, The Engage to Excel um, company uses an acronym called RESPECT, which in and of itself um, is is lively and connecting, and I think our employees will respond to it a lot better, and it will definitely drive some interest from them. Um, The RESPECT acronym uh, Still encompasses the exact same areas that Press Daily with survey, which is still recognition, exciting work, um, security, pay, education, and career growth, conditions, um, kind of like to see, and then the last one truth. And so um, This will allow, you know, employees want to see that. So this will now really jump out for them and they can see it right up front and be very clear about what we're surveying them on. Um, So, Engaged Excel has been around for 125 years. They have that many years of experience amongst the group, right? Um, They have, in several different industries, not just healthcare, but healthcare is one of their bigger industries and so they have um, less than 2% turnover themselves within their company. Um, they have been uh, honored by, uh, by the company 5,000, um, and their research is composed of over 30 years of research and following how, what companies and what employees want to see in engagement. So currently, they provide employee surveys, and so that's what we're doing. They also do employee recognition, and so we actually are using a recognition um, recognition platform as well. Uh, The recognition platform allows us to send emails to staff saying thank you, happy anniversary, happy birthday, Um, we just launched it recently, I've used it a couple times, Tony's used it. (laughs) Um, Several different people have already used it, and so we're hoping that folks also identify
4: that they're all connected with the same organization. Just um, another point on that is they have the capacity to grow that element into a points-based system where employees can be awarded points and then use them to purchase gifts. The question for us is can we sustain an amount of money over a long period of time rather than start and stop it. And so once we're confident we can do it for multiple years, then we likely would turn on the points system and grow the recognition element, and then that will grow the connection to the employee engagement survey as well. And so it becomes a more holistic approach in this particular area.
2: Um, so the uh, engagement index is um, satisfaction, pride, advocacy, commitment, and discretionary effort. Again, same indexes that press gamers would use mm-hmm. in press Ganey's form. It's a question rather than identifying it um, as a um, as an adjective, and so it's a little different for them. But the exact same information we're surveying. Um, sample questions, and there are actually five questions in each area. Um, again, these are questions that our staff have seen before, but now under respect, they'll see my organization values my contribution, right? And so they'll really, truly be able to identify with what that acronym means in the questions in that area versus just hearing as it has your engagement. Item. So the experience will be a little different because they will also be able to do it via their mobile, which hopefully will encourage more participation because it will be easier for a lot of our employees to complete the survey. Um, The dashboard itself um, shows, I can barely see that. You guys have to run out (laughs) to time. Okay,
1: great. Before you go on to that, by any chance, when they do that, their mobile are most of our staff able to log on to a wi-fi locally so there's no um, yes data charges for that oh uh, yeah we have we have uh, they have permission to
4: log on with their wi-fi access within the facilities thanks so mm-hmm. we have both yeah
2: yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. Um, and so this again is just the breakdown of the acronym of respect and so what it shows is exciting work being number one. Um, it has the highest percentage and it shows um, conditions and then education and career growth. Uh, the person mentioned on the screen though, Jack Riley, he's their chief scientific officer. He's the one who has combined all this 30 years of experience. So he's been out there for 30 years. Internationally, across the world, just gathering data on what employees um, really value most, and this is the data um, that his this is the data that his research has shown. Um, our reports would be a lot easier. <laughs> um, reporting through Presgoni was a little confusing for folks. Um, there were too many different areas to understand and does that number come from and what is, what is this made of. And so this would be a lot easier. They get the engagement index, which is the five areas we looked at, so they'll get scores on those. Um, the different categories within the RESPECT acronym, they can see their scores there. Um, this, the individual questions, they can get scores on. Um, the overall summary, the heat map is an interesting one because the heat map will allow a department to see their overall scores and it's in different colors and so you can see at a glance, just looking at one screen where you're lower um, along the RESPECT acronym versus some of the other areas. So it just shows up red and blue, Where you're doing good and, and where you need a little work. Um, they can see comments if we decide that the overall um, response summary. And, and finally, presentations can be built within the system for managers to deliver to their employees. So as they're reviewing um, the results with their employees, the system will allow them to put in presentation form. Um, and then finally, action planning. Action planning, um, I don't know if you recall, but through Press there was an APR, is what they called, an action planning readiness. And they and basically said, you weren't even ready to start action planning if your store was at a certain place. We don't do all of it. Engage Excel doesn't do all of that. It'll just be you get to review your results with yourself then review them with your team and finally decide what you're going to work on. Um, and so we will be able to continue to work with them. Pulse surveys are a lot easier to run. Um, we can call out smaller groups and run pulse surveys that way. Um, and a little more frequently if we decide. So that we're not waiting too long to review data again. We can review it more frequently. Um, the cost is um, a lot more economical. We'll save lots of money. <laughs> and um, I, I, I really think it'll be more engaging for the staff. I think it'll be something they'll be able to respond better to um, and something that they'll, they'll just catch their eye and their interests in, and
4: be encouraging for them. And that's it. Okay. So did, um, a couple of things to add are, you know, to emphasize the ease of engagement for the employees is mm-hmm. the primary okay. concern here. Mm-hmm. Press, Press gain is a good product. They're broadly used in healthcare. The ease of interface for an employee and then the ease of interface for manager on the report is significantly easier. Mm-hmm. The back end work that HRS department has to do to get the right data and it's significantly easier too. Mm-hmm. And so the product all around should be easier. That's going to push us to use it more frequently and allow us to do more pulse surveys to get a more frequent uh, sense of where we are with everything. And that's going to allow us to reach out on a more frequent basis and then provide more data. Right? Then we can be action-oriented around the data we're receiving as opposed to waiting 12 to 18 months, really, before you can see if an action plan is having some sort of impact. Also, knowing that over the next eighteen months we're going to be implementing Epic and the challenges that we'll face with that, we probably want to do pulse surveys running into the next year, not to saturate our employees, but to really get a pulse on where they are, because there are going to be certain degrees of challenges that people face when we make that. We want not be able to get a feel for that, and this is a better tool to do that than the Prescany tool is. Um,
1: I'm curious if your um, if I'm a manager will I have a prompt to go take a look at my team's data? Will I be receiving some sort of a reminder that I have access to look at the results of the
4: engagement. Yeah, I mean, there'll be a prompt from this and there'll be a physical prompt from Cheney Yes, There'll be be in-person meetings with them about the data. So
1: so they do have, in essence, you're going to hold them accountable to coming back and looking at this and utilizing the data to then make corrective actions in their leadership or planning or team
4: meetings or something and then you can run based on the action planning we can identify who is building action plan and who is actually like all engagement surveys and action plan it takes time to see whether people actually did it because you can enter a plan and do nothing or you can not enter a plan and do a great deal and have significant impact Uh, but by running reports on the action planning we've got a sense of who's actually actively engaged in this on the managerial side okay Okay. good yeah Like um, you said, this
7: is awesome. I mean, we've been tracking this engagement survey since I've been on the board, and it just feels like this company, you know, this change, touches on everything we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Drilling down you know, into different departments, uh, the ease of use. I mean, mm-hmm. the concept of putting, making it mobile, Like, yeah. should have probably happened for Pesky earlier. I think it's like <laughs> kind of a duh. Right. Um, so this is awesome. Yeah, no, I think this is really exciting. So thanks. Thank and it looks like the. And it's cheaper, is what we said. Yes. yes. It's a shocking considering they were able to recruit live blood. <laughs> 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 I'm sorry, this <laughs> uh, is offensive. Recruit live blood. Oh, so i do not bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Twenty years ago,
0: maybe.
7: <laughs> right. Thank you. And the I could just now,
0: this is fascinating. Our next slide is, and I, um, I actually, having all the interesting um, match day and diversity with residents and. Um, seeing what our residency program highlighted in um, various publications. I suggested that this item come to our committee because we're such a, we're we're so strong and so excited and so um, fortunate to have this this great resource, our internal medicine residency program, as well as our other residency. So welcome to Charlotte Williams and Dr. We're figuring out the clicker. Hi. Hi,
5: everyone. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, okay. so I'm sure if I should go ahead and start. So my name is Indu Subramanian. I'm the um, Vice Chair of the Department of Medicine. I'm also the Residency Program Director. I've been at Highland since 2006. I am trained as a pulmonary and critical care physician, and I've been Program Director of the Residency for the last six years, so since 2012. Um, thank you so much for letting us come and present a little bit about our programs. It's, it's so great to come talk with you all and share some of the things that, some of the exciting things that we um, have going on in our programs. So um, I'm gonna talk to you about the internal medicine program, uh, specifically about some of the diversity that we have. So here is a picture, an old picture, of our internal medicine residency class um, way from way back when. So we have had an internal medicine residency program since 1955. Mm-hmm. And actually, apparently we trained people even before 1955, but it wasn't officially recognized as a residency program. So we go a long way back. So that's the good news. Um, sorry, that's, yeah, that's the good news. The bad news is, look at these people. I mean, there's no diversity. I think there's one woman. Yeah, there's one woman like way in the back. They have these horrible outfits. And they certainly don't feel like they're, they're experiencing any joy and once based on this picture. So luckily, you know, we look a lot different now. So this is our last year's intern class. And um, so we wear better clothes, so there's a lot more diversity. And uh, there's a lot more joy, too. <laughs> so we're excited about this. They don't have to wear those clothes. They wear those clothes. Yeah, um, they have a lot more autonomy in <laughs> what they want to wear. So um, we have three programs within internal medicine. Uh, one is the preliminary, or formerly known as transitional program. And here's a picture of our current interns in the preliminary program. And the nice thing about the prelim transitional program, it's a one-year program, and we've trained many of the specialists and surgeons, surgical subspecialists, in the East Bay over time, because they do one year, and then they go on to do their specialty. And then we have our primary care program. These are our six interns for this year. Um, this primary care program is dedicated to um, training people who have practiced primary care in underserved settings. So that's been around since 1980. And then we have our traditional categorical program. These are our interns from this year, and we've been around since um, the 1950s.
0: Would um, you prefer to have questions? Any time. After anytime. The, the presentation? Yeah, anytime. Then I would, um, I want to ask, if they
5: preliminary transitional interns, are they? always going into surgery or most often into surgery? Yeah, so the tra- it used to be called the Transitional Program, and at that point we trained people who would go into surgical fields as well as medical fields. And in the last 15 years it's called the Preliminary Program, so Preliminary Medicine Program. So all, now we train um, specialists who have to do one year in internal medicine. So that includes radiology, anesthesiology, dermatology, um, okay. PM&R. We have,
9: um, there's three interns that are actually under the auspices of the surgical program
5: who are
9: doing their first year before they go into the Kaiser, Oakland, ear, nose, throat residency. So those three um, have been rolled into the surgical
5: program for at least the last 20 years, possibly longer, as long as they've had that relationship with Kaiser. So after we moved from transitional to preliminary, both under the direction of internal medicine, like um, our program worked in internal medicine, we actually have a surgical preliminary program too. So that's within the Department of Surgery, right? So they train the subspecialties as for surgical Thank you. subspecialties now one of the things, you can't really see this, but in addition to making sure we have gender diversity, and racial and ethnic diversity, we really um, emphasize getting people from different types of medical schools as well in the internal medicine program. So we really scout for you know, the top international grads as much as we do um, osteopathic grads as well as U.S. medical schools from all over. country. And so this class represents that well. Um, We had the valedictorian from Ethiopia, we had the number two student in um, Iraq as part of our um, intern class, doing pretty well. So our faculty, so we have a huge Department of Medicine faculty and all of them teach, but we have these folks who have been selected to be our core faculty and so they have, have ongoing training to learn how to evaluate, get feedback, participate in recruitment, and have special interests involved in residency, so implement programs, and and help us um, really, it's with these people that we've been able to thrive over the last several years. And there's a lot of diverse backgrounds from where people trained and uh, what their interests are. So I'd like to read to you our mission statement for the internal medicine programs. To graduate physician leaders, who will provide high-quality, biopsychosocially oriented, culturally relevant care to vulnerable populations? Um, as you all know, one of our strengths working here at Ireland is so before you go on, it's a beautiful mission statement. Oh, really you. beautiful. Thank you. We wanted to make it shorter, but we really didn't want to take any. No, no, well, yeah, that's <laughs> great. Um, So, you know, our community is our biggest strength. And, as you know, Alameda County uh, is the seventh largest county in in California. And depending on which poll you look at, it's either the first or second most diverse county in the country. Mm -hmm. So it's so, and we have languages, 26 different languages on the interpreter services. So one of the things that all of us are looking for is to try to have our physicians and staff, et cetera, reflect our community. Um, it's pretty clear that when there is a better connection and language concordance that there are better outcomes. And so we really have been, this, is, this has been a priority for us in the last several years. So and since I became program director I have the data for the last six years to look at um, our diversity. And it's pretty darn good. Uh, we're really proud of this. Um, so you can see that uh, the big green section, I can't use this laser pointer, is a huge section, 44% uh, of other. So it doesn't fit into the traditional underrepresented minority category, but some of them are very underrepresented. We have a couple of Egyptians and folks from other part of the Middle Eastern. We have one person from Iraq. Um, so there's definitely uh, a lot of Cantonese speaking folks. So those are not um, people we can put into the underrepresented minority category as represented by the Medi-Cal definitions. But um, we're proud of this. um, Individually, broken down by year, um, you can also see on the right-hand side the percentage of underrepresented minority recruited each year. And in the graph, you can see how the actual number of folks recruited each year. And at the bottom, you can see the national underrepresented minority enrollment in all of internal medicine residencies, the average is 17%, so you can see our averages are way above that. The other thing, this is super exciting. I went back to count all of our current residents that we have, we have about 66 residents right now, and 88% of them are multilingual and um, many of the languages are are listed, and Spanish, of course, being the the biggest one. So what do our residents do after graduation? I thought you guys might be curious. Um, They do a bunch of different things. In our traditional program, about a third go on into subspecialty training. 60% stay on as hospitals, and 10% um, I actually am a subspecialist, but I'm saying they have seen the light and we're going into outpatient medicine. <laughs> um, and then in our primary care program, the majority, um, the last few years, 100% of folks have stayed within primary care and um, 80% of them have stayed within underserved areas, FQHCs, and stayed on as academic faculty here <coughs> at Highland. So what about the first year after graduation? Where do they practice? How many of them stay in underserved areas? So if you look at all comers from our program, three-year programs, primary care and categorical, a good chunk of folks stay and practice in underserved areas, whether it's our own community or other underserved communities, So, so that's cool. Um, I just ask, sure. I, I've noticed often
0: when I go to your events, the events for interns or the, the events for our residents that are, residency events that, and, and even when we have presentations from physicians who practice here, they often say and, and share that they've trained here. Yeah. Yeah. I, it just seems to me that, I, I know I don't have any numbers, but that um, many of our physicians who've been here, and serve our community have also trained here.
5: Yeah, and I think that's one of the things I wanted to highlight here. I'm not gonna go into all of this, but um, some of our grads who trained at Highland internal medicine program have gone on to do some amazing things in our residency program to serve not only future trainees, and our patients here, but our community. I think that is the most exciting thing. So a couple of these pictures to the top right and bottom left show our residents going to people's homes and participating in home visits. So this program has started, um, this is now our second year, and this was started by one of our former grads, um, Alex Diaz and um, it's been spectacular. The things that people are able to talk about connection, right? You go to someone's home and you see, this is why you haven't been able to take your medicine. This is what's in your fridge, right? This is why you you have steps and you can't get into your home. So there's some amazing um, ability to connect and provide better care and address social determinants when you actually get out to people's homes or communities. You see what grocery stores are around and how transportation works. So that's been extraordinary. Um, In the bottom right, we have Dr. Nick Nelson, um, who runs the Human Rights Clinic. He is a grad of Highland's primary care program, and he's been doing awesome things. Um, Just a few weeks ago, they trained 100 people from the community to uh, learn how to do uh, evaluations to grant asylum. Mm -hmm. So that was an amazing training experience. It's the second year they've done that. We also have one of our former grads who goes out and does community outreach. And recently at the Day of the Dead festival, they were actually able to screen um, a number of people and had 20 different new diagnoses of diabetes and hypertension and had financial counseling there and got a bunch of people, 25 people who were undocumented, to get appointments. Here Highland, right. So I think you talked about that. So it's um, I don't need to list all of these, but it's just it's cool. It's like you mentioned, you know, people staying within our own community, serving our own community. Mm-hmm. And I just threw this in here because I do want to um, folks to understand we're an academic program also, so we're able to still compete with the other programs in sending our folks off to places like UCSF, UCLA. Um, and uh, UW, et etc., for a good, strong fellowship placement. I and mean, that's what I have, so I'm happy to take any questions. Mm-hmm.
7: What's not working? What can, what can the system mm-hmm. do to make it better?
5: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think the biggest thing we're dealing with is um, resident burnout.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: And I think the burnout that's experienced is not because of lack of autonomy. You know, if you look at, um, is it Daniel Pink that wrote um, Drive and the three things you need to stay well, autonomy, mastery of, pur- uh, mastery of skills and purpose. I think they're just they don't have the chance to have space. You know, to have that space to reflect, to experience the joy of medicine. Mm-hmm. It's a constant do, do, do and they're doing so much that is outside what a resident or physician typically should be doing. Is that because and, uh, of the patient uh, population? I don't think it's the patient population at all. I think it's a lack of resources. And, uh, the, for example, the clerical work that residents are doing and um, the social work and the discharge planning and placement issues that have come up, I think that can be taxing. Um, when you can't address those needs that patients have, and you felt that you're, you're feeling that you are the only one that has to try and do it, then it just becomes over and out. So I think there more resources on an organizational level to help with discharge planning, social work, placement, and clerical work. So what,
1: what's the likelihood that this program can connect with health leads, um, where there are perhaps uh, community health workers that are trained to follow up and support that? would
8: that be like? So I think she's talking more about what happens while, while they're in the inpatient setting in yeah, terms of yeah. uh, the work that, that is coordinated by or facilitated by st- staff in the organization to help to move patients where health leads, at least as much as I know, is, is when patients are in the community. Uh, they couldn't actually they couldn't actually facilitate a transfer of a patient or, or discharge of a patient um, outside of the organization because the patient still under the care of the organization, so it's really the organization's responsibility. Um, the the work that she's mentioning, or the, uh, I should say, the challenges that uh, uh, India is mentioning, are um, uh, well. This is about Highland, so it's mostly uh, at, at at Highland, mm-hmm. and there are a lot of efforts underway now in in, in partnership with our hospitalist program but in our care management and our um, STAR program to really look at throughput challenges for the organization which then encompass some of the uh, complex uh, social services needs but also uh, encompass some of the um, operational logistics of moving patients for diagnostic procedures and or transfers from the uh, outpatient to inpatient setting or from one unit to another unit. So there's a lot of effort around this uh, sometimes uh, amongst medical staff We talk about um, um, the need to be able to speak to when there are not necessarily uh, challenges that are not necessarily driven by resource constraints but ineffective use of the resources that we do have uh, that often becomes a challenge. Meaning, um, for example, a provider uh, uh, interacting with a staff member who for whatever reason, is not actually providing the need that the patient has. Uh, Speaking up to point that out feels like the person's ratting the person out. And so there's a, well, I don't want to get somebody in trouble. Uh, But at the same time, there's a, then this falls to me to get done. And so we we may, in some instances, miss the opportunity to address a performance issue uh, that also becomes a cultural sort of uh, perception of, individuals and parts of the organization that don't seem to match the level of commitment that say either the resident or the provider staff have. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for us to look at how we um, partner around those things and these are the types of things that actually when we do uh, ACGME surveys um, where it's to keep the program accredited that the um, that the college is really sensitive to, because it is supposed to be uh, predominantly about teaching the providers to be providers, not for expecting them to do clerical work and or other uh, uh, tasks. Uh, so so we have been able to satisfy those expectations, but still know that there's a lot of room to go. Um, uh, not just uh, purely, I, I, I don't, at least it's not my impression that it is so a resource issue, but it's also a but, uh, but I think a process
0: I issue. Trustee and I would suggest maybe that it, it was it's it's a, it's a patient mix issue, not so much a resource issue. I mean, if you have a patient mix that's more vulnerable and more, and more, and has less resources themselves, I think mean, that's
8: true too. Yeah, I think yeah. that's an excellent point. I mean, it is it, which, and I think I, I think you would agree with this. Those uh, uh, those those residents just as the providers, this is all the uh, employees in the organization who, I should say, uh, uh, majority who understand our mission and the population we serve understand that that attends Mm -hmm. with it some complexities that you would not experience in other settings. And while it is true that a lot of people know that going into it and, and, and uh, derive a lot of uh, personal and professional uh, satisfaction from being able to help people in that context. It doesn't necessarily obviate the fact that when you feel so overwhelmed that there are going to be moments when it just feels insurmountable. And so I think that's what she's underscoring here. I don't know that that's something that, that is completely resolved. I, I, I
1: just want to clarify my point, but can I do that? I
7: have to move. Oh, I, I, just, you I want to see. Okay. I just want to say thank you and I'm so sorry, I'm late for another meeting at City Hall, but I met the, I went to the, the resident mixer um, in uptown last spring, I think, and I just was surrounded by so many really, really smart, motivated people. It was really, really um, inspirational. So so thank you for your work. And thank you. sorry guys. You yeah. Thanks for tomorrow night.
1: See you tomorrow. Yeah. Um I, I just wanna clarify, I, I, I can't fathom that any of the individuals that we are so fortunate to have would say, "Oh no, I don't need a volunteer to work with me and helping young, you know my patients get to uh, uh, you know a clinic or know about other resources in the community." Health leads from what I've absorbed um, in ways. Uh, say graduate students in social work or college students even or community health workers yeah. to just make sure that a doctor who's now just written a prescription for something and knows this is a patient that doesn't have refrigeration at home to basically store the medication or doesn't, have, doesn't seem to have a, a, a grocery store nearby, that other uh, person works with that patient to try and solve that issue sure. and not take up the time of the physician who's, who's got other people to see and their time uh, could be spent in other ways. Um, I'm trying to connect that Kind of resource and be able to say maybe it's not called health leads here maybe it's
8: something oh, else. We have health yeah, leads. Yeah. was actually started yeah. uh, by one of our okay. residents. So we do. Yeah. So we didn't have okay. a program. But uh, yeah, I was saying, like, I'm not saying that that's not a, okay. a benefit. In fact, we do have that type of thing. I was saying that I, if I was hearing her correctly, as I've heard before, those aren't the types. While well, those are still challenges and we, we mm-hmm. work on them, uh, the stressors or the, 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 um, the uh, burnout and the taxation. Is, is not just that, it's these other internal things that I, I think she was trying to underscore. But yeah, to I, mean, I think, think it's
5: a little bit of all of those things. Yeah, I think yeah. that mm-hmm. health advocates are great. right? That's exactly the type of resource that is super helpful on the outpatient side mm-hmm. um, to help patients navigate the system mm-hmm. and for, to reduce the emotional sort of load that Mm -hmm. residents and physicians take on because sometimes Mm -hmm. you're taking that on because you don't know what's going to happen to your Mm -hmm. patient. At least you Mm -hmm. have another resource you can send them there and you're like, okay, there's another group that's going to help hold the patient. Is there enough of that? Probably, I'd say, it'd be I appreciate say always, more. Yeah, there always <laughs> more. be more, absolutely. Um, yeah. So, and, and on the inpatient side, to help navigate patients who are discharged would be amazing,
1: because,
5: mm-hmm. you know, people keep the numbers, and mm-hmm. you rotate off the service, and you're still wondering, <coughs> like, did that patient ever make it to cancer for the oncology clinic? Did they mm-hmm. ever get yeah. the treatment that they need? And so that's the burden, that, that load that you yeah. carry yeah. constantly, wondering whatever happened to that person, yeah. who's owning the patient? Yeah. Uh, and that that becomes extremely taxable.
1: Yeah. Are the residents allowed to participate in some of the resiliency uh, training that Gina uh, uh, was
9: well, uh, Yeah, so uh, that, yeah. that wellness program. Uh-huh. So I think just today there was a wellness grand round. So that, that program, I would say, um, it's, it's in its infancy. Uh-huh. Um, it's, it's present now whereas just a couple of years ago it was absent so I think there is um, we've made significant progress there in terms of recognizing this as as something crucial um, to, to the performance and to the longevity of our providers um, which is um, which is a huge gain honestly just even the presence of a program like that and the support of the administration um, to give you an example I can remember sitting in a meeting probably four or five years ago where we talked about this and in the House of Medicine, this notion that you know doctors need to be you know participating in wellness, and it was like, oh, well, that's just goofy. You know, if you're, you know, you should the harder you work, the better the doctor you are. Why are you campaigning for yoga? Um, that was the that was the attitude, and I think there's been a huge shift there that that um, that we have all now caught up with. So they're available. Can we do more? Absolutely. I think there's a, a huge amount of ground we still need to cover um, to to really
2: you know, have a a
5: robust wellness program for the residents. And I would say that the wellness program addresses individual Mm -hmm. aspects of burnout. But definitely, I mean, there are many articles that show that you've got to address things at an organizational level to really address Mm a physician Mm -hmm.
0: burnout. Do the interns, uh, the residents and interns have, I imagine they do, do they have informal types of support?
9: Yeah, there's mentorship programs. Yeah, yeah. Rooms. Mm-hmm. yeah so I, I think um, yeah, medicine. So in emergency medicine, we um, you know we have buddy group outings. We have um, we try mm-hmm. to make our our journal clubs um, to give you one example. So it's very, um, it's just a simple intervention. We take our journal club off campus and we have it in the homes of attendings. Mm-hmm. So just even kind of removing it outside of the hospital environment. Um, you know, even our part of our recruitment, that is in the homes of residents, so, so even these, these get-togethers, just not to sound um, too squishy here, but the, just the human connectivity of it, um, the ability to socialize and, and recognize that you're, you're all in this, um, you know, for, for good and noble reasons and that it is good. It's not just
5: you versus, you know, a system or the electronic medical record or whatever it is. Um, and then, you know, we've been trying to implement time and space to experience the joy of medicine. And I really like um, one of the Stanford former program directors came and spoke to us, um, Dr. Kelly, about to look at it from that perspective. You know, mm-hmm. get some space to reflect, to talk about that patient encounter, to talk about that incident that happened, that critical event, to talk about the good things and the bad things, but to share that joy and experience that a little bit to kind of combat the, the, the difficult stuff. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I have one more kind of a question, not really so specific to the, to this, My question is about how do, when you have a training program on site, like we do, when we have, um, we train residents and we train um, others, other clinical, um, clinicians. How does that work, how how is that different from a, um, a facility or a hospital organization, acute or, or um, ancillary, ancillary, acute, or ambulatory that doesn't train? What's the, in terms of staff, in terms of human resources? Do you mean like allied health professionals, so? Uh, so
4: kind kind of practice practice, yeah, I think you understand. Do. So operationally, you yeah, and a that, if you, do, if you have zero training program.
0: Yeah. So what does that mean for our <laughs> staff who aren't being trained? Do they have additional, um, requirements or this impacts somehow it it must impact their their
4: jobs and duties and activities it can make you more efficient and less efficient you're using residents that are in effect a low-cost resource to see patients it is slower because the residents have been trained and so you may duplicate interactions mm-hmm. with patients because you need an attending and residence. Yeah, and then you may need staff around them to support a residency training program. So it comes with both benefits and costs, mm-hmm. but as an institution with a mission to teach, that's part of our underlying, it is part of underlying of the yeah, as of well.
0: point, too, about yeah. whether the efficiencies, perhaps, or the, um, or the challenges for even the residents, but as well as for, uh, that people who are training and working closely.
9: Yeah, I would just I would just count on that with the naysayers who are going to say it's less efficient, it's slower, it's more it's more you know, encounters with a provider. There's multiple studies out there to show that the patient outcomes are better at teaching hospitals. Um, so, and it doesn't correlate at all with patient satisfaction scores. So, if you go and look mm-hmm. at, yeah, that there's there's a discordance there it has been That's shown in the literature, and I, I can't quote you the journals off the top of my head. Um, but um, overall, patient patient outcomes are um, better at teaching hospitals um, compared to the private sector competitors.
6: Mm-hmm. Okay. I, just, I didn't, I didn't,
8: I didn't just, I didn't hear Charlie say that the outcomes were were. Uh, uh, the differentiator, I was just talking about the, the, the efficiency of the clinical process if you right. are just a, yeah. a career. Just like yeah. there, are, there are a lot of uh, teaching places that will have, on, say, on a medicine service, a hospitalist only service and a teaching sure. service. And the notion is a, a fully trained independent provider seeing the patients is, uh, is, has the capability of seeing patients um more more quickly than someone who's working through the learning process of someone doesn't mean that it's better or worse okay. that, that, that wasn't uh, the point it was it was just the trade-offs but to Tony's point Organizations who do this do it not just, it it isn't driven by efficiency, it's driven Mm -hmm. by the mission of we both want to serve people and we do see the benefits of actually having a cadre of new providers, one of which you just outlined, which is oftentimes in a teaching facility, the clinicians who are the uh, faculty are more cutting edge than and, and keep current or more current than uh, non-teaching faculty mm-hmm. in a community setting, which is a benefit uh, of, of a program of it, uh, like
5: that. So, I would just point out that, you know, I, I agree with you with the efficiency question that always comes up, but if you have a, an attending on their own, seeing patients, there would be a cap that's lower than when you have a resident team. Correct. Cool. Like mm-hmm. that attending is ultimately seeing more patients um, and supervising the care of more patients. So we are able to see more patients and provide more care because we have a teaching program. Yeah, the cost could actually be greater uh,
8: in some respects. Absolutely.
5: Thanks. I I just
8: wanted to explore that a little bit. Um, Before
9: we leave this topic, though, just um, so hi, I'm going to introduce myself. My name is Charlotte Wills. I'm um, the Emergency Medicine Residency Director. Uh, I am a Highland product. I am now my 21st year at this facility. Um, So I I graduated in 2001. uh, And I'm also in East Coast Transplant. So I came out here partly because my my husband very much wanted to be on the West Coast. And this was the hospital that reminded me most of home, um, having done all of my clinical training what was then Boston City Hospital. So um, the county mission has always been very near and dear uh, to my heart, and has what is what kept me here. Um, back to the, you know, what is difficult difficult for my residents right now in the emergency department. It is the um, it is the continual perpetual state of code surge red um, th- we are in right now, and um, I know probably most everybody here is is aware of that. Um, But it is incredibly taxing on, I don't think just the residents, but all of the staff. Um, However, you know, I had a resident just yesterday um, come to me concerned that this is actually negatively impacting his clinical training because the ED uh, was holding over 30 admissions uh, and functionally what they were dealing with was only six empty beds in an ED that should actually have 44 beds and hallway beds and asthma chairs. Um, so our ability to actually move patients through and from my residents to uh, getting back to the seeing patients and being efficient, you have this, this fleet of incredibly willing, energetic doctors wanting to see patients and the 40 patients who need to be seen are in the lobby of the hospital. Um, And that is, um, it's frustrating um, and it's also incredibly stressful because they can't get to people they know are incredibly sick. So a huge number of those patients were very high acuity and you can't actually get to them. So I know this is not a new issue. I know it comes up in many, many forums and committees and meetings in the hospital, um, but it does have a very real impact, and I would say it is probably the largest stressor, and when we look at SWOT analyses and whatever, it's the largest threat to our program at this point, particularly in the recruiting season here where we're trying to to recruit um, another 12 interns to come to our program. Um, There's this concept of emergency medicine and patient touches and actually having sufficient volume of patients to see, and that volume is honestly right now not there. The the acuity certainly is. The acuity is off the charts. The the patients are as sick as I've ever seen them. Um, But actually being able to move the people through the system uh, and practice emergency medicine, and um, and not actually just monitoring station one of our ED right now can look like an ICU at times. I mean, it did yesterday with five intubated patients. So um, it's 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 a real it's a real problem, and and is an issue
0: for the training program. want to move on to good. a lighter note. <laughs> no, that's good. No, we look at you know, the environment, as we've talked in, in our board and here as well, and we talked earlier about if we're going to go out and do some um, some training, what we might start at Highland, because this is where our IIHP I, I, program, is that where it is? No, the no, no. I, Which one? The, the, uh, the II injury and program, the IIP because yeah. yeah. that's where the, we, that's where injury injury-prone yeah. um, Activities, but similarly, I mean, to your point, Dr. Wilson, here's where we're talking about um, satisfaction of residents as well as staff, and and it's in it's in that area in our emergency room. we in our high volume, high acuity parts of, of the organization where that's that's something that maybe we can address, but we keep looking at it and we have to keep focusing on it, yep. not just for, I mean, certainly, definitely yeah. for our, 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 our clients and our patients, but also for our staff and our residents. And, and, and it's all, I mean, this hospital... Um, you know, more than any other hospital
9: I've ever um, worked in is so, um, it's so interconnected. And so, you know, yeah, Surge read right in ED, but that translates over to, to what Indu is describing on the inpatient wards because then, you know, the, the internal medicine residents are completely under the gun to be rounding more quickly, to be generating discharge orders, to be, you know, executing on decisions that maybe would be much more, you know, um, considered and not under that type of pressure. And it's, you know, it spreads out to all aspects of the hospital. It spills up into the operating rooms, so the PACUs start to fill up with our critical patients, and the surgeons have to cancel their elective procedures. Mm-hmm. So the surgery residents aren't you know, um, performing operations. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Not to mention, obviously, the, the, the ultimate consequence of, of patients not getting the procedures they want, patients not being seen in a timely fashion. Um, it makes, I think, um, our ED, our lobby, a very difficult place to be. Um,
1: and, and from your vantage point, what's yeah. the throughput issue of the day, what would thre-
9: you... Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I am. A, I, I won't claim to be a systems person, <laughs> and there are people with a lot more expertise sitting in the room here that have, have much more of the global view, um, but uh, probably Ten years ago, I sat on MedExec, and I remember um, the then-CEO coming in with the new plans for the new building, and we were all kind of surprised because it was fewer beds. Um, and I remember sitting there and actually turning to, um, to a colleague sitting next to me, and I'm like, I think the hospital is like three floors too small. Um, and I think the hospital is like three floors too small. Uh, I really do. Uh, for the volume that our ED supports, um, before the implementation of the ACA, we crested somewhere north of 92,000. It was kind of crazy, and I will totally grant you, a lot of those patients did not need to be in an emergency department, they certainly didn't. Um, we've seen the volume go down. The majority of those patients are patients where their complaints are getting taken care of by a primary care doctor, so I see far fewer med refills, need my insulin, Ran out of this, Ran out of that, need a note from my doctor. Like, that That, which was commonplace is not. I mean, now I'm seeing, like, wow, I really wish I could get to that person with chest pain in the lobby. So the patient volume that we left over with is, is incredibly ill. Um, I sent on New Year's Eve, I'm not sure how many people to the operating room and to the ICU. Mm. I saw three incredibly rare diagnoses all in the space of four hours. Um, So it's the patients are incredibly sick, um, but we need rooms to admit them to. We need rooms to admit them to. So I I think, you know, that that we can't go and build three floors on the hospital, but it is. I think a lot of it is a capacity issue. Um, I know, uh, yeah, was that, and
5: do speak to the roadblocks on the inpatient side of things? which is I think I already mentioned, but the social work, and I know mm-hmm. a lot of resource has been put into fixing it and improving it, mm-hmm. and I appreciate that, but I think that has been a big challenge, is mm-hmm. to have discharge planning and getting people safely out of the hospital.
0: No, I, I, I I opened this topic, and I uh, feel very strongly about it. The rest of the board does as well. And the rest of the uh, uh, we all we all want this to mm-hmm. to work better. Unfortunately, um, you know, if we could add more rooms, we would at a million dollars
1: per night. So. Well, and and I'm hearing, you know, that more rooms is one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is perhaps those. Um, reach so that patients who are ready to leave can leave and safely leave and we know that they're going to be taken care of in the community or wherever it is that they're being discharged to. Um, well, this has been very interesting. Um, um, I I it's a
0: little, I could we just tell you at the yes. end that we yes. yeah. very quickly slides yeah.
4: oh, for the emergency program. Oh, okay.
9: Um so we want to emergency nurse. Okay. I will I will read this. Um to yes, get into this topic.
4: Oh, Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um the emergency provider.
9: So um so these are our current emergency medicine residents. Um and um I love them all very much. Um, so a little bit about our program, um, Highland has had an emergency medicine program since 1980, which doesn't sound nearly as impressive and old as my <laughs> iron college here. Um, but emergency medicine is a really young specialty, it's only been, it was only sort of actually became a specialty sometime in the late 70s. So Cincinnati was the very first program and Highland was really uh, not far behind that. So one of the oldest in the country, uh, definitely one of the oldest in California. Uh, we're a four year format, we have 12 residents per year here and um, what they go off and into uh, really runs the gamut. We've had everything from um, people like myself that stay on at Highland, and um, to people that have become CEOs of biotech companies to we currently have somebody who is a director-level position at the World Health Organization, so very varied uh, careers. Um, Where they come from, they come from all over the country, I guess a little bit in the middle of the country is not quite as well represented, Um, but certainly all the UC schools, the West Coast, um, Um, Baylor in Texas, Tulane, um, Chicago schools, um, all of the Ivy's, all of the Boston schools. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I never thought of it that way. Uh, Not all of those schools have medical schools. so uh, yeah so that's our diversity there in terms of where they go off onto again looking a little bit like a political map there I guess with the swap in the middle there Um, but they go off into the world to uh, many many different locations and the part that this doesn't capture here uh, are the people that go internationally so we have two of our residents right now who are starting Bhutan's first emergency medicine residency Uh, one of our grads started a program in Tanzania in Rwanda Uh, we had a Grad um, that I was just emailing with, emailing with yesterday, she started Shanghai, China's first emergency medicine training program. Um, China has a very different um, style and format for postgraduate medical training, and she was asked to start a U.S. style uh, emergency medicine training program in um, in, a, in a hospital that does have enough beds, 2,500, uh, and she did. Uh, and that's um, astonishing for the fact that she didn't have any formal medical education training, but also she's from Chicago and does not speak. China. So she learned Chinese at the same time. So um, amazing. Um, Not everybody goes off to to China and Tanzania. Uh, Many of our grads, if you go to any Bay Area ER, you're going to run into a Highlander. So we are, um, we have really saturated the market here. And I would say that many of these places, Highland grads are the medical directors. They are the chairs of their department. They run, they are present in the EMS system. Um, So they have leadership positions within these communities, which um, is nice for me as a Red Sea director, because it's one phone call, one email if a graduate wants to apply and work at a certain place. Um, it's also nice for me as um, the mom of three boys um, that when I've gone to um, my health care provider and gone into the ER, I have, um, I have been cared for by my own graduates. Um, I've actually been operated on by Highland Surgery graduates. So um, you know the people that we're training here in this hospital, uh, they are the people who are caring for our family. I guess I should add both my father and my father-in-law have been cared for over at UCSF by Highland graduates in the emergency department. Um, these two women here, um, their dear friend Sushma Shaw on the left, she was uh, one of a classmate of mine here at Highland. She was the former chair at Eden and then Barbara Bond is the current chair of the medical group at Eden. Um, Academic placements, as Indy mentioned we are an academic uh, facility, despite being a county hospital here, and we've done exceptionally well in terms of our academic placements. So about 60% of our grads actually end up in something that qualifies as academic, meaning associated with a teaching program of some sort. Um, Here at Highland, um, we are proudly inbred. So I would say the overwhelming majority of our faculty actually are products of our own training program, and there's been uh, incredible longevity. There is really very little turnover I think compared to the industry standard we um, we look like the Supreme Court it's, it's kind of crazy, <laughs> we just don't leave
5: um,
9: and I think that's a testament to the commitment to this hospital but also just the esprit de corps of this, this place and um, it really does keep people here. Um, UCSF is basically Highland West so there's an, a lot of their faculty uh, are Highland trained and that's because they didn't have their own training program until about um, 9 or 10 years ago um, this here is just a partial listing of the many universities that our grads have gone off into. So many of the other emergency medicine residencies that you might encounter in, in teaching hospitals, if you went into their emergency departments, you will find Highland grads. Um, Our graduates, as I think you guys are probably familiar with Andrew Herring's work here, um, but Andrew is a Highland grad, so we were lucky enough to recruit him from Harvard Medical School, and basically since he was an intern, he's just been innovating and doing really cutting-edge work when it comes to uh, pain management, alternatives to narcotics, and I'll credit Andrew with single-handedly turning around our department in terms of our own narcotic prescribing practices. So ahead of the curve, he realized that we were just prescribing too much Vicodin unnecessarily. Early and within three months, he had sort of sold this on the faculty, and we curbed our narcotic prescribing by 65%. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was probably, I would say, four or five years ago. Since then, obviously, he's he's um, really at a national level now, uh, pioneering the buprenorphine bridge program, uh, which his model is going to be expanded to all of the teaching hospitals in the state of California. Uh, and he's been dealing with people at a national level. Um, just to show you the reach of Highland, uh, his bridge program. He's reaching out nationally to pilot this in other teaching facilities. Uh, We have grads at Hopkins, at NYU Bellevue, at Bay State in Massachusetts, at the University of Vermont, and Brown, who are now uh, implementing Highland's um, Bridge Program, um, and they are Highland grads. So this network is not only wide, but it is incredibly closely connected, um, collaborative, and enduring. Um, a slightly more recent we this is Dan Schnorr. So Dan uh, joined Doctors Without Borders upon graduation. His first station was in uh, South Sudan, where he was not only the only physician, he was the only American on the team in a very war-torn area uh, providing care to refugees of war there. So he was there for about a year, uh, which was fun because he would send us text pictures of various complaints being like, what do you think I should do with this? And we're like, yeah, clearly it should be admitted to the ICU. And he's like, um, I have like a tea bag and a tube of antibiotic ointment. So no, so he was practicing in incredibly austere conditions. Uh, this, if you go on the MSF website, it is um, his blog about being the doctor on the Aquarius, which is the ship that's been sailing around the Mediterranean uh, rescuing refugees uh, from North Africa as they flew to Europe. So he has just some incredible stories of the patients he's encountered there. Um, so uh, when he's not overseas uh, doing humanitarian work with MSF, he's uh, also at Harvard UCLA. Hmm. Um, and then this one that I mentioned earlier, so Terry Reynolds uh, is a 2009 graduate of the program she had a whole different career before going into medicine, so our, our residency attracts people who have had whole former lives, and she's an English professor at Columbia, went back to medical school uh, at UCSF, and came to us, was chief resident here, and then ended up uh, doing a lot of international work postgraduate in Tanzania, and from there, after working extensively with the African Congress on Emergency Medicine, uh, applied for a job at the World Health Organization, and she became the first emergency physician uh, to achieve a director-level position at the WHO, which is is a very high-level position, and um, not only that, she's one of very few women at that level. And her title is um, incredibly lofty; as a director of global trauma. So she basically is implementing trauma re- response systems um, on a global level. Um, and I asked her, I said, "Why? You know, are you sad you do a residency? Like you're not actually practicing medicine?" She's like, "No. Um, to be able to sit down at a table, I draw from my Highland experience." and I have credibility. I have credibility from surgeons from all over the world because I can talk the talk and I totally credit that to my time in the Highland ER. Um, more of our work locally, so this was Harrison Alter's um, uh, gun violence uh, project uh, from the Andrew Levitt Center for Social Emergency Medicine, and this is an incredibly collaborative, multidisciplinary group that has surgeons and caseworkers and social workers, medical students, emergency physicians looking at the five-year toll of gun violence in Oakland, and not surprisingly, their research here found that if you had been um, injured in gun violence once, you were likely to be injured again or killed, as a Result of that. So, this was the front page of the San Francisco Chronicle in 2015. Um, so, diversity in emergency medicine. Um, I will be blunt, emergency medicine historically has been an incredibly white and incredibly male profession. Uh, When I interviewed in the uh, 96-97 cycle, it was not uncommon, I was the only woman in the room. That year I got called by a a program in Chicago because they had matched 12 white men, and they wanted to know why I didn't come to their program. Uh, And women, let alone people of color, represented very little of the pool. I don't think that has changed um, hugely overall. When you look at the overall um, population, um, still now only 9% of emergency physicians identify as underrepresented in medicine, and primarily there, the WAMC definition we're talking about, mostly black, Latino, and... um, and, in comparison to internal medicine... Compared to internal medicine, yeah, exactly, we do terribly. Internal medicine is, is a much more diverse specialty, absolutely, yes. Um, so the Hyman program here had, traditionally when we look back on it, run about 11%. So we had some people of color in the program. We were actually, at that time, probably doing much better than many other programs. Uh, But in 2006, our residency leadership and core faculty decided that this was going to be a priority. We were going to actually um, literally change the face of the residency here and actively recruit to be a more diverse residency. Um, With two goals in mind here, to produce more emergency positions of color, but also to more directly reflect back the community that we live and serve here uh, at Highland um, for all the reasons that Indu has has um, so so high- highlighted so well. Um, so, what did this look like? Um, you can see here, there's two bar graphs. Uh, we went back and we pulled all of the, um, we went back through the graduate roster and looked at all of our graduates from 1990 through 2009. And there you can see um, the percent of underrepresented in medicine as well as um, people identifying as other or non-white, okay? And then you can see after our, our implementation of these very, um, very directed, um, efforts to recruit, uh, the diversity reception that, that you attended, Trustee Jensen, that's part of that initiative, um, But we substantially increase that. So this, these are the results from the classes of 2010 through uh, the class that will graduate in 2021. So um, really a pretty significant gain there that correlates more with all those faces that I showed you at the beginning of the presentation. This is what it looks like in pie chart form. I apologize, the writing's a little bit um, small there. But you can see that overall, that pie chart has changed substantially for the better. Um, I expect this only to improve. So, of our 150 applicants that we have um, will have interviewed by next Wednesday for next year's incoming class, well over 50% of those applicants uh, who will have interviewed with us are something other than white, and a significant portion of those are underrepresented in medicine. Um, and as one of our African American graduates, who's now uh, now faculty at Johns Hopkins, said, "You know, diversity begets diversity. You know, build it." and they will come, people are comfortable when they come and they see that you support this mission and that there are people that look like they do. So um, we're definitely seeing that. That's what people have told us at the diversity reception um, and it's why the diversity reception, I think, just continues to get larger and larger and larger each year.
8: So how's that uh, trend or have you uh, um, observed how that trend is? uh, Altered or not
2: uh, along gender? Uh, along gender,
9: yeah. So um, it's a great question. I didn't go and calculate it out for this. I can tell you that, um, so I was, I was um, one of three women in my class. That's um, the class that started in 1997. And that um, three years ago, we had a class that was 10 women, 2 men. So our program is more than 50% women at this point, and um, uh, an applicant today asked me, he's like, you know, what was your greatest accomplishment in the past year? I said, it wasn't really my accomplishment, but, you know, seven women in our program had babies. We had seven new Highlanders this year. So I think, you know, having women in your in program is one thing, um, and I think the fact that women feel comfortable to come to our program and expand their families, is um, so taking it to a whole other level in terms of just supporting women in the workplace. So um, I'm not worried. I'm not worried about the the gender diversity um, at all. Um, the one place we're not we we have uh, we were actually uh, going through trying to sort this because the the application system ERAS doesn't really let you look at that. It, it doesn't really do a good job of, of um, accounting for people who um, are gender non-binary. Yeah. So so I don't know about that. at this point. Um, We, um, I think, still have room to go, although we've had, uh, with sexual orientation, um, reasonably good representation um, and I think part of that is we also have good representation on our faculty, yeah. yeah.
8: that's We do have you, good throughput put in the family birthing center
9: for those. <laughs> so, so that's, so we, so we know that. So the issue, um, just a practical speaking point here, it's, um, it's breastfeeding, it's pumping. So that's actually a little bit of our issue in our, in our D, de- we have a, a good space for it. It's actually the sexual assault room. Yeah. So it's a little bit weird that's because the, if you had, yeah, given the name of the room and all that, um, you know, so in a perfect world, I would, I would, you know, have there would be a lactation room specifically in the ED. I know, big ask that you're here. Um, <laughs> wait, wait, I yeah,
1: saw at an airport a lactation
8: oh, yes, yes, uh, pod, there's the pod. a yeah, pod. pod, yeah. yeah. What, I, I said in particular that dry, but, uh, we, it, it is on my list as okay. soon as
4: this part <laughs> stuff finishes. Uh, okay. Its prime real estate the, the shift in diversity of the yeah. residency, what has that done to the faculty makeup? Uh, yes,
9: yeah, yeah I, I'm so glad you asked that question because this was this was the this was the big discussion um, at our last faculty retreat because um you know, I, I joked about the lifetime, of, you know, the, the lifespan of the Supreme Court. We have very little turnover in our faculty, and our faculty looks, you know, it represents the ethnic makeup of emergency medicine in 1980-something because that's when actually a bunch of our faculty joined. So it's overwhelmingly um, white and male.
4: It, as a patient, it's glaring when you walk in the ED. Because mm-hmm. I know the demographics, obviously, of the whole right, organization. right and it stands out as you go in as a as a patient to be
9: Yeah, better. absolutely. So um, part of that is there's just very little turnover but this is this has been a priority and um what I can say is that uh, in uh, a positive side effect of the acquisition of these of the two other EDs, so Alameda and San Lando, is that there are a number of faculty positions that to go and recruit um, highly capable, motivated people to work at these other two facilities. Um, the um, the the allure for it is you get to work also at Highland. So we've been able to bring on a number of junior faculty. Um, who are female, and who are underrepresented in medicine, so that's created some of that. Um, We still have a long way to go with with the, the diversity of the faculty, and I think, you know, from the chair on down, we know that. And it's, and it's um, the biggest push for this is actually coming from the residents because the residents want mentors that look like them. Uh, and um, it, yeah, the Concord mentoring is incredibly important. The, the, the limiting factor there, it's, it's the turnover. It's the turnover in the faculty. Um, that being said, every time we have the opportunity to go and um, bring on somebody new, it, it is, it is it's, you know, such a priority. Um, the other thing I would say is just in terms of, um, and this is a problem at universities everywhere, is in academia, um, so there's emergency medicine, that's, that's that you know that terribly low number of 4%, and then when you go and look at people of color in emergency medicine and academics, the number gets even tinier. So mm. even if we had a position tomorrow, um, I don't know what the applicant pool would look like for that. Certainly if there were highly qualified people of color, Absolutely. Um, there's. It, it's. It's not a, a given that you're going to get a huge applicant pool because, again, the numbers that you're starting with, particularly with. Um, Hispanic medical students and Black medical students—it's just not a large pool. So this is a, pro- a more systemic issue. That um, if you if you listen to Jocelyn Freeman Garrett talk about this, she um, actually gave a really nice um, te- uh, testimony in the, in the in front of the Congressional Black Caucus. She talks exactly about this. This is her whole whole push with the mentoring and medicine program, get more people of color going to medical school to become doctors that can go on and then fill this. Um, In the immediate, what does that look like for my faculty, Um, you know, it's just something that is is first and foremost on our minds, and so if a position comes up or is going to come up, absolutely, that's a priority for recruiting. Um, This, I guess I'll just end with this, so this is, just in terms of how we, so I was asked, um, uh, what, when we were asked to, to give this presentation, like what do we look like compared to everybody else, and I, and I have the statistics I've given you there. But Emergency medicine as a specialty hasn't really moved the needle, so one of the authors on this in the top line, David Duong, he's actually the associate program director in our program, so we have faculty who are actively engaged at a national level in terms of addressing this. So, um, you know, as a specialty in academic emergency medicine, still um, diversity is very, very much an issue. I would say here at Highland, at the resident level, uh, we have made huge gains and we'll continue to push that at the faculty level, that's you know, that's, where, that's where we're gonna need to do the most work, for sure.
0: Well, you'll have all your diverse residents coming back to be Well, so, so that. that, yeah, that's mm-hmm. exactly it. That's exactly
9: it. So, um, you know, I think um, many of our residents, um, and certainly, you know, I am, I'm guilty of this too, many of us wanna stay here. We want, give, given the choice between staying and working at Highland and going somewhere else, we want to stay here. These are highly coveted positions. So, um, so again, it is the, the, the issue with that that those of us that love here and then stay 21 years is that you know I'm taking away a space from the people that come after me. So, term limits, maybe. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Any questions? No, very. Impressive. That was really yes. really interesting, and, um, uh, and thank you both, doctors. Thank you for all that you did.
9: Well, thank nice. you for your support, and thank you, thank you for giving us opportunity <coughs> to speak with you. And if there's um, ever a chance, years. we can, um, we can, you know, answer more questions, give you information about what we're doing in the training programs. Um, we welcome that. When you and I were talking, if you ever want to
0: hang out with us, with the
9: residents, spend some
0: time in the floors, in the yeah. ED, in the ICU, um, just to let us now. visit. Yeah. yeah. As you mentioned, you know, you did bring up some of the um, things that your your interns and the residents are doing, uh, and. Uh, as you identify more, more programs and more innovations that they are doing that might be relevant for um, you know, for supporting the workforce especially, that would be great to hear about in this committee. Thank you. Yeah, come and I'm um, sorry we went over, but I just, that's good. it was worth it. Um, I think we have an update from our attorney.
3: Yes, I'm just going to give a uh, quick report on uh, the Retirement Plans Investment Committee meeting. Uh, the last meeting was November 29th, and as you know, we do these meetings quarterly, um, and... You know, basically, uh, the purpose of the committee is to, you know, review the performance of the plans and ensure that they're uh, being managed according uh, to the policy statements uh, to receive, you know, reports from any changes that have occurred in the plans over the past, uh, course of the past quarter, and then, you know, to address any concerns that the committee may have as to the effectiveness of the management of the plans on behalf of the employees. Um, you know, the November 29th meeting, you know, the, the plans you will know, continue to, to do uh, quite well uh, November 29th was just prior to the start of this most recent you know bit of uncertainty uh, in the stock market so that was part of the, the discussion that we had is you know what our investment advisors were foreseeing in terms of you know going forward and uh, you know they indicated a certain degree of you know caution was probably necessary but in terms of um, you know any specific things that could be done they really didn't have an answer you know as far as that goes and apparently none of them brought their crystal balls to the so,
7: um, but
3: um, you know the, the plan has done very well. The uh, the total assets the plan have uh, grown to uh, about. Uh, just over 200 million dollars, uh, to about 220 million dollars. Uh, the plan assets for, or the assets of the plan at the same time last year were about 170 million dollars. So there was about a 40 million dollar increase uh, in the total plan assets. Uh, about 300 additional new members into the plan. I think you know the thing that's significant in um, uh, to understand about our plan is that. Typically, the demographics, you know, looking at the performance, the demographic performance of our plan versus the other plans managed by Prudential. Um, And so, even though we're a safety net hospital, even though we're a public agency and those things, you know, it's rather significant. The folks from Prudential, you know, are rather amazed at the fact that, for example, our average um, uh, plan balances, you know, for our employees are as much as twice the benchmark for you know other prudential clients, um, which speaks very well of our employees and their focus on you know actually saving, you know, and planning and preparing you know for their retirement. So, um, you know, when you and then when you look across the board at the average, uh, you know, balances for each member. Um, except for one category and that's you know, the uh, 50 to 60 category, the average uh, balances for employees in our plan will far exceed what Prudential has for the average balance of the others. So uh, it, I think that I mean, says a couple things. One, our plans are well utilized. Uh, Uh, They do well by the employees, and the employees really see some value in actually, you know, contributing and using that as a retirement vehicle. Um, The one area that we continue to look at is loans from the uh, the plan. That's one area where we tend to run a little bit higher than the prudential uh, benchmarks about Typically, about 12% of uh, participants in the Prudential Plans use loans. Our numbers typically have been running about 13 14%. So uh, one of the things the committee is going to look at is a little bit deeper dive into some of the, the demographic information is, you know, who's taking out these loans, you know, what we can sort of, you know, ascertain from them. It's not a huge issue, but it has been, been consistently above that, you know, for the entire time that I've been on the committee. So that's the one area that uh, we're looking at uh, going forward. Um, You know, no significant changes in the plan lineup. We have uh, 21 funds in the plan, um, and we currently have uh, two funds which are on our watch list. Um, And just for those of you that missed before, we you know basically have 12 criteria that each fund is. Analyze against each quarter, and if they get red marks in certain areas, then they go on to what's called a watch list. So, we currently have two funds on the watch list, um, which you know. That's not unusual. You know, funds come on and go because, you know, if a fund manager changes, it it goes on the watch list. If it has performance below a certain benchmark over a period of time, it goes on the watch list. So it's not the fact that you have funds on the watch list that means that things are going bad. It's whether or not you're actually managing that. And so that's being done very well. So, you know, overall, it was very good. Uh, The last thing I would point out, and this is one thing that we look at each fund, um, you know, basically the cost to our employees. Uh, to participate in the plan, um, meaning the fees that they play. Uh, You know, our employees, uh, the mark for fees is uh, 0.56%. of their plan assets go towards fees. Uh, the the benchmark, um, you know, meaning what most other funds would require uh, is 0.83%. And so, you know, our fund or the administrator of our plan is very efficient from the standpoint of the employees. They're, they have more money going towards their retirement, than are going to uh, plan fees. So we we'll watch that. We we'll look at that in each meeting to understand where we're standing. Um, couple of meetings where we made some significant uh, changes to bring that number down as low as we could so that the actual cost to employers was as low so that's where we stand now so are there any questions that anyone has about
1: that Uh, the only question I have would be do the um, employees get regular uh, Safe financial management. Uh, yes. So that they can use these correctly. I mean, are
3: was talking about the loans? So just was wondering. Yes, and so uh, so a couple of women. Uh, I should mention it wasn't specifically covered in this meeting, but we have been running. Um, you know, Tony's team uh, uh, has been running a series of uh, seminars for employees on financial planning and retirement planning and financial management. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they've they've been. Utilized, I'm not sure I would say well-utilized, but they have been utilized. And actually, what we're looking at doing with the committee is precisely that, is understanding better why people are taking loans, so that we can then determine whether or not there's some additional training opportunity to undertake with employees that, you know, to educate them to other alternatives than taking out or that type of thing, so. I assume there's the plan is written with some limits on the amount of the loans as well. Say again? The plan, the plan is written so that there's a limit on how much they can borrow. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, uh it's it's limits. to the ER level two ETA ten minutes. to the ER level
0: two ETA ten minutes.
3: Yeah, according to what they actually have invested, how long they've been in the plan. So, yeah, there there's only a certain amount they can they can uh, take a loan out on. Okay, that's my report then. Thank
7: you,
0: Mike. Thank you. Thank you everyone, um, thanks for your patience. Happy New Year, hopefully. We'll start out with a big meeting and then we'll go back to the agenda. Do you want to um, share anything? Well then I'll leave the agenda, thank you.